everyone welcome to the podcast today's guest is a very cool guy by the name of joel cheng joel is the coo and co-founder of a very cool electric startup in singapore the company is called iron mobility and his company is developing technology to become and develop the leader in electric motorcycles. I think this conversation was very interesting to have just because of where he's based, Singapore. I think there is a lot of interest in uh, moving and changing a lot of the dynamics around uh, electric mobility in that region. And I think his company is aimed at basically revolutionizing the electric motorcycle for that entire region alone. So this is a very cool conversation that I had with Joel. We chat about everything that has to do with eye mobility, everything to do with the challenges, the opportunities that exist. Uh, the conversation also takes inroads into particular access of the markets, having to do with the engineering, the building out of the infrastructure of, uh, of iron mobility and basically what the roadmap is for the next uh, next five to ten years. I think this chat was particularly important especially now when we start to think about sustainable mobility, we start to think about renewable energy and climate change. I really think that these topics are extremely important to have uh, to talk about. My conversation with Joel was super insightful and you really get to get a peek into what it takes to build a electric vehicle startup in Southeast Asia. So with that, I really hope you enjoy the conversation. And remember, if you like these videos, you like these podcasts, uh, please subscribe, comment below and suggest anyone uh, else that you'd like to have uh, on the show as well. So with that, I really hope you enjoy it and uh, here we go. Hello, Joel. How are you? I'm great, Barry. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining the um, podcast. Um, you are the second uh, guest on the show, and you know it's really good to have you. I uh, I wanted to speak to you today about all the cool things you're doing with uh, Iron Mobility, and I know you're based in Singapore at the moment, and uh, you're doing a, you know not just Singapore, but you're all over the shop in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, trying to trying to get this up and going. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and probably give the listeners uh, a, a quick one-minute intro about yourself, and then we can uh, we can take it from there. Sure. Thank you, Barry. Thanks for having me, and uh, really excited being here, being your second guest. <laughs> uh, really wishing you that this will this this uh this segments of yours, uh, this podcast or video interviews of yours will will go on to much bigger things. Right. Thanks, man. Okay, so. A little bit about myself. So I'm, as a, as a kid, I was a petrol freak. Okay? I loved cars. I, my dream was to be a race car driver. So I loved combustion engines. And I basically got my dream job, right? When I started working for BMW and I rose from a marketing guy all the way to group CEO in 12 years. of a big dealer group in China and in the region over here. Soon after, I realized... Um, this is part of when, uh, about five, six years ago, when the diesel gate scandal that I think many of your US listeners will, will remember, the diesel, the diesel gate uh, scandal from Volkswagen, where basically we realized, the whole world realized that uh, Volkswagen was cheating on the emissions with their defeat devices in their, in their ECUs. Basically cheating regulators and, and consumers that the, that the cars that they were putting out were actually much dirtier, much more polluted than we really actually are. Sorry, much less than they actually are. And when I looked around me and I looked at uh, the car industries, that, the manufacturers that I knew, and I asked them, and basically quietly, a lot of them acknowledged that this, was, this is what the industry does, basically for profits, you know, to, to game the system a little bit. And then I realized I was part of the problem, not of the solution. Now, why I love mobility so much is because from a very young age, I realized that mobility is a key tenet of the human condition. To move, to move means we can live. To get a, to to get a job, to in, improve our, our station in life, to love, you know, all these things, for knowledge, for advancement of society and civilization. But then I asked myself, being what I was doing, 
why should the cost of our mobility be our health and the health of our planet as a whole? So that's when I decided, um, when I looked at leaders like Tesla, how they were changing the world, then I came back to Southeast Asia and I looked at the map in Southeast Asia and I asked myself, what is the biggest uh, impact that I can do from my experience for my region in Asia? And I looked around me, then I realized it's, it's not the, the car that we need to transition towards cleaner mobility, it's actually the motorcycle. Because there's easily two to 300 million motorcycles in Southeast Asia alone. There's a billion motorcycles in Asia, right, at least. And they're all dirty. There is no Tesla here. You know, there is no uh, Honda or Yamaha that, that is going to be a Tesla as well. So I felt that I needed to, 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 to make an impact on that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, you know, as you said, you mentioned Tesla, you mentioned all of these companies. I think it's incredibly important, especially in Southeast Asia, because of the demographics, because of the way the city streets are laid out and the way people commute to and from work, right? Most of the time, it's not cars you see, it's motorcycles, right? So it seems perfect um, that, you know, what you guys are doing with motorcycles is uh, quite significant, especially when it comes to EV motorcycles specifically. So, you know, I really want to sort of dig deeper here and, and figure out exactly what Iron Mobility is all about. You know, you mentioned uh, you started with them uh, for to, since 2019, right? Yes. And, and before that, you were in Scorpio Electric, right? So can you tell me a little bit about what, you know, Scorpio Electric, I know that from reading the stuff uh, about you was also an EV motorcycle company uh, as well. Was that more or less a transition from Scorpio into um, Iron Mobility or it's a completely separate thing? Yeah, so when, when I came back uh, and, and thought about doing this uh, three years ago, I hooked up with a public company in Singapore that had the same vision as I did I was willing to incubate uh, and accelerate the concept. So to be honest, that was really our learning process uh, and my as well. I learned a lot in Scorpio Electric because at that time, just like I think Tesla 15 years ago, there is no electric vehicle two-wheeler industry. There is no supply chain. There is no even consultants. There's nobody to ask. You basically had to, we had to figure out everything ourselves. And so that was the education in Scorpio. Uh, however, it soon became clear that uh, Scorpio Electric was going to go on a different path. Being part of the public company and being involved with uh, uh, very high-end exclusive manufacturers like Lamborghini and Alfa Romeo, very Italian. So they were going to go on a more, much more um, uh, exclusive high-end uh, range of vehicle. Uh, sorry, my, my, my background is, is getting a bit loud. No, no, it's perfectly fine. I can hear it perfectly loud and clear. All right. All right. So, so therein then I decided that for scale to really bring, bring about meaningful transition to electric two-wheeler mobility in Southeast Asia, we had to focus something more affordable, right? Something the everyday man could use, not a Lamborghini electric bike, not, a, not an Alfa Romeo electric bike, not even a BMW electric bike. We had to go down all the way, like I said, in the car world, maybe like a Toyota, a Toyota, Hyundai, electric uh, motorcycle. And that's where Honda, Yamaha are. So that's when I started uh, Ion Mobility with uh, my partner, James, uh, who's a tech VC guy. He, he, he has tech robotics background. So we decided that, hey, let's, let's do this, right? Let's bring uh, affordable, but yet still desirable. This is important, right? If it's affordable, it's cheap. And like what many countries can bring out, but it's just not, it's just not enticing. It's not motivating. It's not desirable. So we had to be affordable and yet desirable. So that's when Iron Mobility was born one year ago. You know, over a year ago, you started uh, Iron Mobility and things have dramatically changed over the past year, especially with COVID. Um, and, you know, so many things have sort of evolved. What was starting Iron Mobility like during these times? I know there's a lot of startups starting right now who are trying to get into spaces like remote working, uh, remote delivery of food, especially, you know, using motorcycles. What is, you know, what's the experience like so far starting Iron Mobility in the time of COVID? Yeah, I think it's, it's twofold, right? 
um, the issues with remote work just exacerbated, right? Because of uh, COVID. But yet, it, it has actually helped us because it's forced us, come, startups like us. So we have uh, footprints in India, China, Indonesia, and Singapore. Right? We have teams, like literal teams, not just vendors or partners. We have teams running on the ground. And previously, you would have to travel. But then you would spend a lot of traveling time, a lot of inefficiencies in travel. But, but with COVID, it meant you couldn't travel. So then everybody had to figure out ways, you know, of managing each other well, of, of integrating teams, of working better together. So I think in that sense, COVID has perhaps helped us accelerate that process that would, would have to be anyway. Like the MNCs do this very well. Global companies, they understand. New York, how it works with Tokyo, right? How Singapore works with China. That sort of thing. But startups, it, it's really difficult to figure out in the beginning. So I think that's one good thing that, that has come out of COVID. But the really challenging part about COVID is definitely in, in the early stages was the funding, right? And this is, this is something that may, may resonate with a lot of startup uh, viewers as well. It's funding, right? Because funding literally dried up basically in the early stages of COVID because everybody was wait and see. Uh, even the VCs couldn't travel, right? Everybody was pretty much stuck. Everybody's trying to figure out what's next. Do we, I talk to VCs, we, we hear of like even these pulling term sheets in the early days of COVID, the first few months of this year. They just pull it because everybody was insecure and didn't know what's going to happen, right? And then, then it moved on to the stage where a lot of VCs asked themselves and told us like, hey, we need to focus on our portfolio, on saving our portfolio first before looking at new investments because this management of our portfolio is critical now. Um, but then it quickly moved to a, a narrative where, hey, this is the best, from the VCs as well, this is the best time to see which one of our portfolio, if they can survive COVID, they, you know, they are show winners. They are real winners that can push through, if you can push through COVID. So, but we managed to uh, do pretty well in terms of the fundraising towards the end. Um, uh, and I think, I think mainly um, because of... Um, the fact that we were really focused on um, executing on a really good um, concept that is whether with COVID or no COVID, it didn't make a difference. Like I said, mobility, affordable and good mobility that doesn't harm our environment and yet, and yet improves the quality of the experience. I think it is timeless, right? So, so that is that is basically the fundamental takeaway that we can have. And eventually, the once the, the VC world settled down, they, they then got to see um, startups like us and the true value that we can bring in the future. Yeah, I think definitely the EV space has definitely taken off like a rocket um, over the past year. You know, you, you, you see like the stock market and you'll see how much Tesla has exponentially grown even during times of COVID, it's just uh, completely outperformed itself uh in terms of uh stock market and revenue and profit and what have you and so i really want to understand why iron mobility exists today i know that you know i've traveled through southeast asia myself i've been through vietnam been through singapore and taiwan and thailand everyone's riding motorcycles right but why has it taken until like you guys and maybe just a few small other companies to really start to think about this now, right? Why is, it, is there a challenge? Um, what do you see uh, in the next five to 10 years that's really going to really make you stand out? Because, you know, we could have done this 15 years ago as well, but has there been challenges that you're facing that only can sort of the technology exists only today that didn't exist before? Okay, maybe to answer your question, Barry, I'll ask you a question. Like you're based in the US yeah. and US is, US is really strong against uh, antitrust, right? But can you name me a, a few companies or industry where huge monopolies remain? Huge. Like when I'm talking huge monopoly, I'm saying like one or two big players just dominate the whole market. So why I ask this question is, uh, it, now, the, and, and US's population, I don't know, 250 or 300, 300 million people. Now, if you look globally, I, 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 tell, you, I, I tell you another monopoly market, for example, the aviation. There's two manufacturers in the world, Boeing and Airbus, right? Basically, they built like, I don't know, 90, 95% of all aircraft planes in the world. Now, what if I told you 
that in Southeast Asia, in a population of 650 million people, there's only two motorcycle manufacturers that control 95% of the entire market. Two. Okay. And one of them, I'm sure you can guess who they are, right? One of them is Honda. The other one is Yamaha. Okay. And Honda alone controls maybe 70%. Yamaha controls another 25%. And all your Suzuki, Kawasaki, BMW, KDM, all these other smaller guys, they control only, they only have 5%. All of them only have 5% of the market. So that's where, as we know, when huge monopolies exist across not just a country, but regions, the huge inefficiencies arise. And that's why, um, first to answer your first part of the question, that's why the electric mobility transition in our region hasn't happened fast enough because there is no, there is no impetus for the incumbents to change, to move. Another, another fun fact for you. Um, so Tesla, like us, uh, we're trying to transition the world to, to electric mobility, right? To cleaner, cleaner mobility. A lot of people talk about Volkswagen and Toyota, how they make 10 million, 12 million cars a year. And that means 10 to 12 million engines a year, combustion engines. But do you know who is the biggest combustion engine manufacturer in the world? Barry. Who's that? Well, another guess for you. Uh, I mean, another hint for you is Honda. Uh, Honda, okay. Honda makes 40 million combustion engines a year. 40 million. From planes, boats, to lawnmowers, to cars, to, to motorcycles, right? Right. So, so can you see what's happening here? In Southeast Asia, they dominate 70-80% of the market. Throughout the world, they're the number one combustion manufacturer in the world. So, and, and what Tesla has shown is that when you develop an electric vehicle, you basically have to throw out almost 70-80% of the combustion vehicle. All your knowledge, all your experience, all your, all your expertise, all your money, all your supply chain. Your supply chain, you hire millions of people downline, right? Millions and thousands of companies. And all of this has to be changed. So these are the huge um, frictions that, that in, our, in our industry, in our region, uh, slows everything down. Now on the technology side, electric technology has been around, electric vehicle technology has been around a long time about 100 years ago. But like what, again, Tesla has shown is that to make it an alternative to combustion is extremely difficult, right? It's, it's taken them easily 10 to 15 years now to do that, right? To make it a, to make it a viable alternative for, for when a combustion, a traditional combustion um, um, consumer will then consider, oh, electric vehicle, I'm going to compare it with the 10 other combustion vehicles I've owned in the past, I've driven. What would tip me over? Is it subsidies? It can't be just subsidies. It has to be the, the, the user experience, right? The vehicle, the technology, the safety, and all these things, right? And we are going up against an industry, like I said, it's easy 100 years old, at least. So, so these are the, all the frictions. So what Ion Mobility, what we do, what we learned very early on is that we have to build everything from scratch. So from leaders like Tesla and others, what we learned from their mistakes is that, so they tried to layer on top of combustion as well. They tried to layer their technology on combustion vehicles and then try to really to improve from there. No, that doesn't work. You have to start from scratch. You have to start with a white piece of paper and then you lose all the, 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 the lousy compromises of combustion. And then you're able to create a, a new truly next generation vehicle. Yeah, you know, I think I like the way you sort of dissected the industry a little bit there and you sort of took it apart because you're right. And, you know, we definitely have to, because the way Tesla did it is they had to think from the ground up, that to throw completely everything away, what they knew about cars and redesign it. And not necessarily the body and what have you, but just the framework at which you run a, a, a vehicle manufacturing company, everything from the way, the manufacturing, the engineering, but also the tech behind the car, because you know, with Tesla, you can have these OTA updates, right? Which Software, is yep. completely unprecedented in automotive industry where previously, I remember, you know, you had a car, you had to go to your dealership and then you'll get the update. But here nowadays, you can just simply roll out an update to your car, no matter where it is, as long as it has a cellular connection, you're good to go. Yes, exactly. That's game changing. The car keeps on improving. 
it improves as fast as the engineers can update the software. Yeah. And, you know, I like the way, you know, ION is focusing on, especially like the, the motorcycle as well. Do you see, you know, you have the car, which has been fairly proved, been proven out, um, not with just Tesla, but BMW have done it. Um, you know, GM have done it as well. Uh, because of Tesla, they've sort of propelled that industry. With the motorcycle, though, do you see any technical challenges or is it really just, okay, taking the body of a motorcycle and putting a battery in, putting a, uh, a motor in and, you know, just away you go? No, so mo- motorcycling and motorcycling engineering and this is refers to combustion as right. well, is the exercise in miniaturization. Okay. Now, you know, the first combustion engines built were, were huge, right? I mean, mm-hmm. for trains and planes, I mean, trains and ships and all that, right? Then it came down to the car. So for us, the biggest challenge was how we, how we're going to miniaturize the electric car technology into a really small format, squeeze it in, you know, how are you going to squeeze batteries, packs, um, how are you going to squeeze inverters, controllers into a small format? How are you going to squeeze big cables, right? Because electric vehicles need big cables as well. Small little things like that. How are you going to squeeze all the electronics and make sure they don't interfere with each other and disrupt each other? So um, it's a little bit like what the, the, probably when you go downstream, like what the drone guys are experiencing as well, right? So when I talk to drone manufacturers, they're like, their concerns are totally different, right? They're like, oh, I need to make sure my batteries are as light as possible because I need to take off right? They don't just need to be small, they need to be light, right? So for electric car guys, more or less, they don't really have to worry about um, space because they have the whole entire floorboard of the vehicle, the car, with four wheels, right? So you've got a lot of space to put, the, put where you want to put the batteries, but for bikes, you don't, right? So, so this exercise in miniaturization is um, it's difficult. It really is. Yeah, you know, uh, I think going through you know, the scaling factor of taking all those components that you just mentioned and trying to, as you said, miniaturize and bring them down to a small scale, you know, it's easier said than done because, you know, you have to think about the engineering aspects around the heat, around the dynamics of the car, of the, of the, of the motorcycle as you're maneuvering away from the streets, the center of gravity and all those things. So there's a lot of challenges there. And, you know, with that, I wanted to sort of understand where you guys are right now. I know that you started a year ago, but do you have a prototype? Um, are you working on it? Is it in, you know, what can you sort of tell us um, about where you are specifically with iron mobility at this point in time? Sure, sure. sure. So our engineering mantra from the very beginning is basically three words, test, test, and test. <laughs> Just keep testing. And that means we test in simulation, test in software, and test in real life as well. You just cannot test enough. And this comes from my automotive background as well, right? Uh, in BMW, they test, you know, all around the world, hundreds of thousands of kilometers, every single view, every single component. That's why Toyota and all these guys, that's why their cars are so good. That's why they last a million kilometers. So for style like us, we are, however, limited, right? With resource and budget and all that. So we, but we still try and test as much as possible. So where we're at right now is, is like this. We have a first prototype out and we did that really early. We did that within... Um, the first, um, first four to five months of, our, of setting up the company. We were planning much earlier. So we did a quick, and I won't call it dirty, but we did a quick prototype. And we not only did it up fast, but we started testing it fast. So we sent our bikes into, for example, Jakarta. And we started testing over there um, to get a lot of feedback and, and did all the focus groups, um, feedback with partners, with guys on the street, that sort of thing. And we got a lot of feedback. And that's helping us build our, going towards our final prototype, which should be next year. But in between the final prototype, it's, you have, like, like I said, you have to have many iterations in between, right? And each of these iterations, you continue testing. You're even testing the old ones as well, certain components of it. So you end up with a final prototype um, next year, but having like 10 previous prototypes that you have been continuous testing. So that, that really... Um, makes the final prototype much more robust and ensures that you minimize a lot of risks. Are you, are you manufacturing the bike in Indonesia or China? We're manufacturing the bike in Indonesia and Singapore. 
Oh, Singapore. So the, oh, okay. Exactly. Exactly. So the plan is, you know, we do like a small batch trial production in Singapore. Um, this is also because of COVID. So this this lends back to the mm, fact of COVID. Mm. Why? Because um, as leadership, it might not be so um, uh, uh, easy for us to travel to Indonesia so often, right? Or even stay there for longer periods. So we would then have to refine, we will have to refine our production or assembly in Singapore and do it both sides. Like for example, we do small batch and for example, we, we, we assemble the battery first and we're confident that in Singapore, then we transfer into Indonesia. But we don't wait. Then we start assembling other components of the bike here. And then finally, do the final assembly, then we transfer it over. So then that side gives feedback as well. So we, we run in parallel. You know, What's, that's... that's a, Yeah, Yeah. no, I, that that's really cool. I like how you have sort of the strategic outlay of um, manufacturing and operations because you are trying to get this out the door as quickly as possible because you want to test. You want to make sure everything is working as expected. And if it doesn't work, you know, why it's not working and fix those issues as quickly as possible so you can, as you said, move to the next iteration, right? And, you know, with that, you know, Indonesia is really an interesting market. There's so many, I don't know how many motorcycles are there, but there's a lot. And what was it like in terms of, you know, interfacing with the Indonesian um, sort of the government and regulatory, was there a lot of challenges there? How do you access a market like Indonesia? No, it's extremely, um, uh, to be honest, we are pretty grateful. They have been extremely supportive so far. And let's be clear, that's not just for us, but they've been pretty supportive of the industry. Because I think Indonesia recognizes that they need to reduce their reliance on fuel imports, right? Um, they, they understand that the electric mobility is the future. They unfortunately are one of the most, have one of the most polluted cities in the world as well, in Jakarta and some other places. So they understand that uh, uh, if they can clean up the streets in terms of motorcycle emissions, they can do a lot for the health of their people. Right and the, the the industry and economy as well. Um, so we we you know they and and they're not just talking about this. They have introduced so a huge slew of measures. For example, EV number plates that allow full use of the vehicle as opposed to combustion vehicles, where it's odd even days you can use. They've reduced the taxes, registration taxes on uh, electric vehicles, and they've increased the taxes for combustion motorcycles. They are introducing tax benefits for manufacturers to set up shop in Indonesia, right. So this is just starting in the beginning ones. And I think for electric cars, they're introducing subsidies for electric chargers as well, which we don't need. So we're extremely grateful for that. But on a uh, ion mobility level, how we navigate this as well is, you know, basically you, you have to align yourself with, um, with like-minded and uh, influential partners. So for example, we, uh, our local director over there, um, he, he's really interested. Um, they have an electric bus project as well. Indonesia. They're local Indonesians. And they are also influential in the sense that they are, they are the sons of the Minister of Trade of Indonesia. right? So it helps a lot. I mean, there, there is no, of course, there, there is no uh, special privileges that we have. But, but we do have that influence. We have that uh, ear to the ground, feedback from them. So, so we know uh, where the government is steering towards. So that's really, really helpful. And it, it, also, it also means validation for what we're doing and for the company in, in Indonesia too. So that's, that's really valuable for us. Is it just uh, Indonesia that you're targeting right now? Or are you targeting, you know, like obviously you're in Singapore, um, sure. you know, how they've been receptive to your idea. What about countries like Vietnam or Thailand? Um, what are the, what's the sort of roadmap for those regions? So we plan to very quickly after launching Indonesia to go to Vietnam and Thailand. So Vietnam is um, it's the fourth largest motorcycle market in the world. Yeah. India, China, Indonesia, and Vietnam, right? Thailand, Thailand is then next. Uh, but we want to be focused. Um, we're a startup. We are just maybe 20, 20 people, just 20 plus. Maybe next year we'll be 30 to 40, but we're still small. And... Indonesia is a huge market. You know, a city alone in Jakarta, and they have other big cities like Surabaya and in Sumatra as well. So if you just even adopt an Indonesia city launch approach, there are countries in itself, right? Just to give you some perspective, for a, for a company like Vespa, 
um, scooters, scooter Vespa, Italian brand. Their volume in Thailand is bigger than uh, the whole volume in, uh, I'm sorry, the, the volume in Vietnam is bigger than the whole volume in Europe, right? So if you just dominate Indonesia or Vietnam, you, you are bigger than the whole of Europe already in terms of volume. So, so we are adopting this um, focused launch approach and capital city approach as well. So maybe Bangkok is more important than Hanoi. So maybe you do Ho Chi Minh and then Bangkok rather than Ho Chi Minh and then Hanoi, you know, stuff like that. No, I think that's, I think a focus approach is, is the way to go. And, you know, I can definitely, I think there's a, like a lot of companies out there that just want to dominate the world. I mean, I, I think world domination is nice to have and it's sort of like the holy grail you want to achieve. But I think starting small, starting very concentrated and focused on exactly what your target market is. And I think, you know, it seems like you guys have done the research. You've, you've entered the market. You're very close geographically uh, to Indonesia. And you probably have people there who understand the situation, you know, boots on the ground, and sort of can give you really high quality feedback about, you know, this is what we need. This is why we need it. This is when we need it and all those things, right? And I guess, you know, going from there, you know, once you have these geographic markets in place, I want to sort of talk to you about infrastructure because Tesla have done a really sure. good job with their uh, supercharger, supercharging network, not just in the US, but they're expanding to Europe, in Australia. They also have a uh, ongoing uh, development there as well. How do you see, you know, the infrastructure around charging, um, around all of these requirements for electric um, devices, electric motorcycles, especially in regions that are more or less either developed or developing, right? And uh, what are the challenges there? So maybe um, I, I can bring a personal philosophy of mine to, to add context. So my personal philosophy over these past few years going to sustainable mobility has been to reduce, reuse, and recycle. This is part of my own life, my own personal life. Basically, reduce consumption you know, as we can reuse things that we already have. And if you can't, then you go and recycle it, right? Now, when it comes to why I talk about this is because um, for electric motorcycles, efficiency is key. Let's be clear. The, the most efficient vehicle known to man, invented by man, is the bicycle. It's the humble bicycle. Of course, they have, of course, risk with motorcycles because you have no, no protection. But let's be clear. In this world of climate action and, and where we are heading towards as a civilization, we really have to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Okay? And in terms of mobility, we also have to think about how we can reduce, become more efficient. That's why you see a lot of people cycling much more and people, like I said, we're pushing into motorcycles because it is the most efficient. You use the most energy Right? And you, you get to travel and get to transport longer distances. So this is a, this is a thesis against even electric cars. Right? And this pivots into electric charging. And this is my point. Electric cars, you know, some of the good electric cars, even Tesla, you're moving two tons around. You're moving two tons of metal and battery around when you don't really need to. I mean, most of the time, the average journey is one and a half human beings in the car. Having said that, developed nations need cars and, you know, for safety, of course. But in developing nations, they don't need cars that much. You just need a motorcycle. And in terms of charging, that's, where, that's hearing where the problem lies. Because when you have to move two tons of metal around, that means, you know, a lot of thermodynamics and physics is just that you just need more energy to fill it in, right? That's why you need bigger charges, bigger, bigger, more faster DC superchargers. You know, you're talking about 200, 500 kilowatt chargers now because people want it fast as well. You know, not everybody's home can charge it. But this is, the, this is the clincher for motorcycles or electric motorcycles. You don't need chargers. You don't need fast chargers. Electric motorcycles, because of the efficiency, because of the fact that they have so small batteries, means that any wall plug is a charger. The billions of wall plugs around the world, in, in every home, in every factory, in every whatever, in every uh, Starbucks or McDonald's that you can put a, put a waterproof outside, that's your charger. That's your refueling point for the motorcycle. For a car, you can't because it's going to take 12 hours to do that. And you can't leave your car for 12 hours in the McDonald's. But for a motorcycle, it could take you 20 minutes to an hour. That's it. 
with slow charging and you're good to go another maybe 50 kilometers to your next destination or to your home to recharge. So the point is this. The point is, why reinvent the entire grid infrastructure, electric grid infrastructure, uh, to suit electric vehicles, especially in developing nations? No, you don't need it. Just use what's, what's there, really, the infrastructure. Uh, for, like for example, our bikes, it's simple. We will have a cable running out, just like a vacuum cleaner. Okay? We have a cable running out, and you find... If you, if, you know, if you can't roll your bike into your house, which most Indonesian homes can, then you find your office in a factory or whatever, ask your boss to, to pull a cable for you to charge it. That's it. It's safe because you have onboard charger, you have safety mechanisms to ensure that there's no, there's no short circuit and all sorts of things. And basically, voila, you, know, you have cheap, affordable charging uh, that is in Indonesia eight times cheaper than petrol per kilometer, electricity cost on our bike. And then you can charge anywhere. You don't have to go to a petrol, petrol station or a, a car charging station. Right? So this is true freedom, we believe. And that's, that's critical. Uh, does it really take 20 minutes to charge it? Um, for our bike, sorry? Yeah, for your bikes. Does it, you said 20 minutes to, to an hour to charge it. That's, that's really quick. Yes, because realistically, Barry, you don't charge zero to 100%. I mean, nobody does that. Right? At least on a, on a daily basis, right? You charge with maybe a 20, 30%, you have 50%, then you charge to 80, 90, that sort of thing. So in these practical ranges, daily practical ranges, uh, for our bike, you can charge 30 minutes for 30 kilometers, right? And 30 kilometers in any inner city, whether it's Jakarta, Singapore, Bangkok, will get you one way, anyway, anywhere within the city. So it's good enough if, if you just need a top up. And yeah. What uh, I guess that sort of uh, leads on to sort of like the cost topic. You know, I know that especially in countries like Thailand and Vietnam, you know, obviously there's a huge income disparity. We have people who are working different types of jobs and uh, the standard of the living uh, varies uh, between the sort of the social classes, right? So is the goal for iron mobility to make uh, EV motorcycles ubiquitous for everyone or is it just for the elite? Definitely not for the EV. Definitely not for the EV. We are targeting our motorcycles to um, at launch, okay? At launch before scale to cater to anybody in Southeast Asia who earns a thousand US dollars a month. If you earn a thousand US dollars a month, you could definitely afford our vehicle, our bike. Um, maybe not 500 US a month, but 800 to 1,000 US, you can definitely afford our bike. Simple. Okay. And that pretty much represents uh, at least, well, at least in Jakarta, about 50 to 60% of the population. In places like Bangkok, more. Um, in Vietnam, a little bit lesser. But it's definitely the mass market. It's not going to be your elites or your rich people. So we're really targeting the lower to the middle income groups of developing nations. And that's significant. So why are we not targeting below? Well, the fact of the matter is we can't. Because without scale, we are unable to bring the cost down of the vehicle to cater to the lower segments. Because like I said, don't forget, the lower segments are served by Honda and Yamaha who've been building these vehicles for 100 years, close to 100 years. And they're building it, building it by by, by 20 million a year. So the scale that they have, it's, you know, you can't just beat it like within the first year or even within the first few years. We need time for that. So I guess like if I was in a position and you said, you know, there's only a certain level that you're going to go to before you sort of reach a particular threshold. You know, if I have, if I'm working and I'm earning, uh, you know, $500 a month or something like that and you know, for the most of, you know, I don't want to obviously put a blanket on all of Southeast Asia, but there's a considerable sure. amount of the population that is in that financial situation. You know, they will have to make a decision. Do I go with this EV vehicle, uh, which will allow me to charge my thing every, you know, 50 kilometers, or should I go with just the standard ICE, you know, combustion uh, motorcycle, you know, are you, do you care about that? Does it even uh, matter to iron mobility or because at the bottom, at the end of the day, those guys, Honda, Yamaha, they'll still be there 
and also be able to cater towards that market. But it seems to me that Iron Mobility is not about the competitive aspect of competing against Honda or Yamaha specifically. It seems to me that you guys are trying to revolutionize an industry uh, specifically and hopefully cause and sort of instigate uh, a movement uh, for you know, EV motorcycles. Barry, you hit the nail on the head. You're totally right. So we, we want to, in a small way as well, inspire and lead the industry and show them it's possible. Look, uh, like I said, I grew up, you know, Honda was my favorite brand, right? I've owned like at least five to six Honda cars. So what we're trying to do is uh, to inspire them, to show them that the market exists so that they will come in as well to push it. Right. We, we, we don't believe we can solve the whole problem ourselves. We can't. But we hope we can lead it in the beginning. Right. And create a niche for ourselves, but yet inspire these big guys, these big behemoths with huge resources to come in, right, to, to help the entire industry. Because our mission really is for clean air through better mobility. And we know we can't do it alone. We have like, a, you know, especially, I don't know about Singapore. It's been a while since I was there. Are there sort of like what's the balance between cars and, and motorcycles in Singapore? Uh, easily, uh, easily 10 to 1, like a million cars and maybe 100,000 motorcycles. Is there, there still like a tax on, on cars? Like, is there a tax on motorcycles? Yes, yes, oh, wow. which okay. makes them pretty exorbitant. Um, but having said that, so, so this is a little bit on nuance, but a lot of uh, you know, just like in, in the US where you have uh, Tijuana and San Diego border mm -hmm. right it's one of the one of the most major human crossings in the world right Tijuana and in, in San Diego right so <laughs> a lot of people don't know this but um, between Singapore and Malaysia in, in a state of Malaysia called Johor which is the southern state is our, is our, our northern neighbor it's probably the most um, it's probably higher the, the human crossings is higher than Tijuana and San Diego so I think every day pre-COVID a uh, few hundred thousand people cross that uh, 300,000 people, yeah, at least 300,000 people. And in that 300,000 people are about 30 to 40,000 motorcycles a day cross into Singapore from Malaysia. So that's where we can see. So we're looking, like I said, we're not just looking at Singapore, we're looking at this region. We're looking at how we can impact even the motorcycles in Malaysia as they come in. If we can convert a significant portion of that, that's basically converting a huge population of motorcycles in Singapore towards electric too. Yeah, I think uh, I remember going into Malaysia from Singapore and it's just a whole different world, right? And I think people, you know, they, they commute back and forth for work and, uh, you know, you see a whole bunch of cars and the highways are massive. And uh, you're right. I think there's just a lot of um, people out there who are using the motorcycle for everything. And I remember like going to Vietnam and you'd see a whole family on a motorcycle. You'd see yeah. people use, um, you know, truckloads and then like all these crates and pallets stacked on the sort of the back of, of the motorcycle. And uh, I can definitely see where this technology uh, is going. So, you know, what's, what's next for you guys? What are you, hoping to uh, achieve in the next, not say five years, but maybe one year time by 2021, uh, where do you guys want to be? Um, well, we definitely plan to launch in 2021, launch our vision, um, which is not only just about the technology, mind you. So we are bringing about, we're, we're trying to introduce pretty innovative um, uh, distribution concepts, um, financing, subscription concepts as well that really in this exact form hasn't been seen, at least in this region. Maybe in the West, maybe in US, it's been, it's been tried and tested. Like for example, direct-to-consumer models that Tesla has shown, um, subscription models, which Tesla doesn't really have. They have leasing and all that, but, but uh, we believe uh, could be extremely suitable for our region. So like for example, like what you just said about um, the affordable segment, right? Is, is Iron Mobility going to, in, a, in, a, in the next few years, neglect or, or disregard the affordable segment, the low, the low end segment? No. So the plan is with subscription, we believe that because the vehicle keeps on improving, our first adopters will upgrade soon. And what's happening with subscription is that then they'll return the vehicles to us and those vehicles will churn, like I said, reduce, reuse, recycle. We'll churn those vehicles, refurbish them, 
and then push it out as subscription to the 500 to 600 US uh, income guys, you see, so that they can get in quickly into the electric mobility space as well, right? So we're thinking, so with traditional auto financing and car sale, uh, motorcycle, bike sale, it's very difficult to do that. But we are considering, we, we have some models that we're going to launch next year as well, which we think um, can change the entire game on how vehicle motorcycle distribution is done in, in our part of the world. So, I mean, that's a really like grand vision. And for like consumers like me, who, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested in purchasing one myself, but how do you, I don't think, are you guys actually by 2021 hoping to get a, a, a an electric motorcycle to uh, actually people like you, you and myself, or is it really just uh, launching, you know, launching that product, but still very high in the testing phase uh what what's your plan for getting it into the hands of the customers by 2021 that's a that's a that's a very tricky question yeah. but a very good question which which we get a lot so right now we you know we we only know what we know what we can see as far as we can uh, in terms of the development we're on track to get the vehicle into hands of customers at least the first batch of early adopters the, the guys who pre-order right by the end of the year next year but with COVID, um, so this is a big but, right? We don't know how long and how bad COVID is going to remain in Indonesia and how that will affect our, our manufacturing assembly and launch, right? So it's still open in the end in that sense, but we are still on target um, in terms of our own internal targets to get the first bikes into customer hands by the end of next year. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, that's mm-hmm. really cool. Do you, uh, what's the website called? It's like ionmobility.asia? That's right. Okay. I'll put it in, yes. the, uh, in, the, in the show notes um, after this. But uh, it, sounds, you know, it sounds really cool. But at the same time, you know, wh- I want to sort of like understand a little bit about your journey as well. Because I know you mentioned mm-hmm. a lot about your interest in motorcycles. You, you started Scorpio as well. And then you had like a growing the BMW dealership um, as well. Did, were you always interested in uh, sort of motorcycles and, and sort of mobility or were you just doing other things before this? No, I've, I've been an automotive guy, you know, pretty much most of my working life. Like I said, I, you know, I dreamt of being a race car driver. That's all I want to do, you know. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky few who made their hobby into like a job, into a career. And uh, I'm thankful and grateful that, you know, it served me well and I learned a lot. Um, but then, you know, I, I soon, like I said, I soon realized that, um, how important mobility is, but how it has to change for the future. You know, let's be clear. There will still be race cars and cars and and combustion vehicles into the future, but maybe they won't be used by everybody. You know, you have autonomous cars, you use them in racetracks, you know, for leisure and all that. Just kind of like how we, you know, we ride horses for fun nowadays, for fun and for sport. Right, we don't use horses as a main mode of transport today. Uh, and a little bit of my background as well. So I, I, one of the key things that happened to me was when I was based in Beijing um, about six years ago. And if I can share an anecdote, um, when I was over there, and this was in the middle of the whole diesel gate scandal, and a report came out in Beijing that said that the average Beijing resident breathes in a brick, this brick, a brick of PM 2.5. Okay. Wow. Every year into their lungs. So for some of your listeners, you don't know what PM 2.5 is. It's basically particulate matter. 2.5 means the, the size of particulate matter. And why the size is important is because at this size level, it goes into your blood. If it's any smaller, okay, um, it gets dissipated. If it's any bigger, it gets trapped by your lungs. But at this size, it goes into your bloodstream and you get all sorts of nasty heart diseases and, and, and all, sorts of, all sorts of bad diseases, right? So can you imagine a Beijing resident breathing a brick every year into their lungs just by walking on the street? So like I said, it, it gave me awakening that, hey, I need to do my part, right? I need to do my part to see how I can improve this. China has done their part. They have moved into renewable energy, into EVs big time. They've thrown billions of dollars at the problem, just like California, for example, and US in some ways being a leadership. 
But coming back to Southeast Asia, I looked at around me and, and I said, what can I do, right? With my, uh, with, with my experience and all that. And then I started as well uh, doing some of my personal pursuits. So I went, um, so I became a climate change witness. I, I call myself a climate change witness. So I'm not a proponent or advocate or scientist. I'm not, I'm not any of those things. But I just, I just try and verify what these scientists are saying, what the scientists are saying, what a lot of these advocates and proponents are saying. So I, for example, the last two years before COVID, I climbed five mountains around the world. I went to Iceland. I went on a climate change expedition. I conducted my, uh, with, with some guide friends. We went into the ice. We looked at the carbon dioxide uh, that's, that's over the last 500, 800 years and how it's accumulated in the atmosphere. And this is all has to do with climate change, with, um, with greenhouse gases, right? Which is the longest-term problem, but the short-term problem is, is the bad air, right? That's affecting human health. So then, you know, this, this built up my, 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 my education, right? Such that I, I knew how, and, and motivated me to, to realize how this is so important, right? What we're doing, especially for Southeast Asia, that I have to make an impact. I, I, I have to at least try, um, to do this, you know, for uh, for our region and our people. Yeah, I think you know a lot of people who probably are listening to this as well, and I think people in general they they need to find something that they're passionate about, but also something that's bigger than themselves. And it seems to me that you and everyone at Ion have definitely found a calling, and the calling is to obviously move uh, the world to more a sustainable future through. Um, iron mobility and i think you know i want to touch back to something that you said before about finding what you do and finding love in what you do as well how, how important is that to you um i think a lot of people nowadays don't fathom on their side they're sort of living through and working through a career that they don't really enjoy and all that stuff right but how did you sort of get out of that rut if you as per se and sort of find you know what you actually wanted to do uh, well, I think it starts with a lot of self-reflection and humility as well. I think it starts from there. Um, it's, it, by, by asking yourself, right, what, what really matters to you, you know, and being, humili- being, uh, being humble is also being honest, right, with yourself. Like, we, we have all these um, goals or objectives that whether our family or society or our peers put on us, like, Oh, we want to earn more money. You know, you're gonna get a position. You want to be a leader. You know these things. But at, at the base level, you know, we have to come to terms with ourselves. Like, what do we, what do we really want? You know, what what really matters to us at the end of the day. And I always take an approach where I fast forward. I've always fast forward, and I I look at myself. I fast forward myself, and I look back from the, at that point, and say, what if if ten years from now, if I look back. Am I doing what I think I should be doing right now, right? Whether is there anything I should pivot or I should change or improve? And it's difficult. Um, life is difficult, right? And startups, life is difficult. You know, everybody's job is difficult, especially to these pandemic times. But if you have that, if you understand your why, then everything becomes much easier, right? The, the problems that we have that we face, money issues or the, or the pride issues or all the obstacles put in, it just makes it a little bit easier it's not going to be it's not going to make things go away but when we face it like for example in ion mobility we face huge challenges as well right? we get doors shut on us all the time um, but because we have that fallback to say that we're doing something bigger than ourselves it matters and this is not just 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 here to make money right you know we uh, we're here for good too right Right better, you know, one of our models is right better, right for good. So I think that's that's a lot more powerful um, than just having a singular goal and that that is not uh, authentic as well to yourself. So that's that's basically my message. Yeah, I think, you know, when you mentioned about how to sort of like you can be profitable but also doing good at the same time, right? And I think there's sort of this like stigma where if you now in society, I suppose, where if you want to do good, you have to be nonprofit. And that's not necessarily true. I think there's a lot of um, evidence to show that 
you know, if you want to make change in the world, you can be a for-profit company, you can make revenue, uh, and you can do really well as a revenue generating business, but at the same time, in parallel, try to make the world a better place, right? Which is what you guys are trying to do. And I think you found that sort of niche that a lot of uh, people are striving to sort of find themselves, not necessarily in EV, but their own personal um, sort of Venn diagram of, you know, I want to do good. At the same time, I also want to make money, right? And uh, I think that's a, a big challenge for a lot of people um, in their day-to-day lives. And especially when it comes to a startup and, and sort of facing the hurdles of being rejected, having, as you mentioned, all those doors uh, shut. How do you, what sort of advice do you give people uh, who want to do their own thing? Um, you know, what is sort of the few tips you can offer to people who want to say, hey, Joel, you know, I'm really interested in this, but I'm, I'm scared. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is going to uh, succeed or fail. What would you say to those guys? I would say there, there really is only one way uh, in my mind. And that is to surround yourself with people who are aligned, who are like-minded. When I say like-minded, doesn't mean that they agree with you in your vision like-minded in your values and principles. Right? So values and principles are really important to me. Um, and this is part of knowing why and who you are, right? Being authentic to yourself. Then you, you set your values and surround yourself with people with the same value set. And it can be in insurance, it can be in cars, it can be in electric vehicles, it can be in a lot of, a lot of other things. Uh, um, sorry, I had a call in. Um, but surround yourself with, and it can be your family and friends too, but reach out to them, reach out to the like-minded people in, in, in your life who share your values and principles, reach out to new people, right? Whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's in your network, social don't be shy. You got to reach out to them and start surrounding yourself so that to build up, um, your network, uh, of strength. It doesn't matter whether you're in Indonesia, Singapore, in US, in Africa, or whatever, or China. It doesn't matter. Because we are stronger together, you know? And when you have people that are aligned with you, who, who, who align with your value set, then they will help you. You will start to help them and they will help you and you'll start to support each other. And suddenly solutions will present themselves. Now, whether you're talking about capital raising, whether you're, you know, you you get a, you get an in to a VC who who's also aligned with your with your maybe your sustainable side or whatever they're interested in, whereas healthcare or whatever, you will get networks into talent, co-founders, right, who are just like you, which you need. You know, no man is an island, and uh, you'll be aligned with partners and customers as well, future customers who believe in in what you're doing, and that's the only way. <laughs> you're going to get strong. And that's the only way you're going to get your vision off the ground. And that's the only way you're going to tweak your vision as well. Because we, nobody, I don't, I don't care who you are, even Jeff Bezos, he, he, didn't, he didn't from day one envision Amazon to what it is today. It's because he's surrounded with people who, who loved and care about, who shared his value set, who were willing to work hard together with him and iterate and move and, 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 and just evolve into what it is today. And that goes for Elon Musk as well, I, I believe. So, um, this is my this is my advice. We don't let don't let yourself uh, get beat down, right? When doors get get closed on you, there's always going to be another open up, right? If you send out a hundred LinkedIn in- invitations and you only get ten or one, it's fine. Talk to that one person in a genuine, authentic way. If that person does isn't aligned with you, then might move on. Keep moving, on. keep pushing on, and, and build up your network. So that's uh. Yeah, no, just to sort of add add on top of that and sort of close the conversation a little bit here is that you, you know, there's this whole concept of reaching out, right? And I think you you can't do this yourself. You know, you can, I don't know, I don't care how smart you are, uh, you can't do this yourself and you need people around you. And this is why it's so important, but so easy nowadays. Like we have everything around us. We have Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. Like there's no excuse to not develop your network. And, and really, it, it really comes down to how driven are you 
to really grow your network, to grow the people, the like-minded people around you. Because at the end of the day, you know, those are the people who are going to uh, push you forward and vice versa, you're going to push them. And it's, you got to sort of offer them something of value and they'll do the same for you as well. And, and you sort of hit the nail on the head there with being authentic, right? Don't send one of these spam emails or whatever it may be, just get to know them, you know, and, just have a chat um, like you and I are doing right here because I didn't know you before this conversation at all, but I'm getting to know more and more about you as we start to sort of wrap the sort of the proverbial onion, right? And I think this is a really good uh, point where a lot of people um, who are sort of just getting out of college or sort of wanting to do something for themselves and not work for the man anymore, but really focus on developing something for themselves developing something that's impactful. Um, I think that is something that I think people can really prescribe to uh, exactly what you just said. So, you know, with that, I think, you know, for the most part, everything that we just spoke about uh, has been really valuable, not just to learn about iron mobility, uh, but also your journey as well and, and your passions and everything behind it as well. Do you want to, you know, just to close off, with some uh, uh, iron mobility stuff. Do you want to uh, tell people about how they can reach you or reach the company? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Barry. Uh, the last closing note about this network um, that I want to, mm -hmm. last small little advice I want to share. When you do reach out to these people, remember this. Uh, this is my own philosophy as well. When you in interact with, with, with like-minded people, Try to listen like we are wrong. But of course, debate like we are right. Right? That's, um, that's, my, that's my last message for that. That's uh, um, very nicely put. Yeah. Um, for Ion Mobility, we, you know, we, we, what we're trying to do is really to kickstart a movement towards sustainable mobility. And we're seeking out partners, talent. When I say partners, it's not just investors, um, great engineers, great business people, uh, even great customers, future customers who believe in our vision, who believe that, that we need to accelerate the transition towards sustainable mobility. But that cars are not just the only, cars, buses, and trucks, they are not the only solution. For the three or four billion in the developing world, it has also to be the humble motorcycle. Right. So I, I would appeal to any of your listeners or anybody out there who's listening to this who, who, who resonate with this message to also reach out to us and, and think about how they would like to contribute too. And maybe it's not contributing to iron mobility, but it's like what we could help you to, like to kickstart you, maybe you're in Africa. And how you're wondering, hey, how do I start sustainable mobility in Africa? We would, uh, we would love to, you know, within reasonable resource and time, uh, give you some tips as well, how to, how to start your, your, your company and your project, right? How to manage the supply chains and, and start a company and start up as well. These sort of things. Um, what we're trying to do at Ion Mobility is really to change uh, the, the lives, the mobility lives of starting with 650 million people in Southeast Asia, improving the air quality so that people can live better lives, can have lower health costs um, from bad air, right? Uh, just recently, two years ago, for example, in Bangkok, the air was so bad over a week, they just shut down all the schools. Okay? That means, I don't know, a few hundred thousand school kids just couldn't learn for a week or two. That's sad. You know, that's really sad. And why? Why, why, why is this? You know, it's not like there was a pandemic that nobody could, could stop, right? It's because we just had too many polluted vehicles in the city, right? It just doesn't make sense, right? So, so we, we would like to reach out um, to all like-minded uh, people in our space as well who would like to join us. Um, we don't think we have all the answers. We really don't. We don't think we have all the technology. We don't think we have the smartest people as well. We think we have a good team, a mo good motivated team that, uh, that can make a difference. So 
in sustainable mobility. So we 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 would really like uh, anybody out there who agrees with us to to reach out to. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Joel. And uh, I, everything, as, as uh, Joel mentioned, I'll put everything in the show notes and hopefully, you know, your website and all the blog posts that you've put up as well. Uh, they can have a read through it. Uh, but I really want to thank you, obviously, to, for coming um, and spending, you know, the time to talk about what you're doing, uh, but also talk about a little bit about yourself as well. So, so thank you, Joel. Kudos, Barry. Thanks for being a great host. And, uh, I say, wish you very best on, on your endeavor. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Joel. 